Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hi there. You are listening to A Diversion from Seneca, the first of an occasional series of chats with a variety of fascinating guests talking to me, Jeremy Goldcorn, about China and all kinds of other things. This episode took a few months to bring together. It was recorded in November 2020, just after the US elections, but it covers a subject who's more than 2,000 years old, the Chinese philosopher-statesman Han Fei. He lived 280 to 233 BC, but his ideas seem so much more relevant to understanding China today than, say, the more famous analects of Confucius or the ideas in The Art of War by Sunzi. Before we begin the conversation, let me give a quick plug for SubChina AM, our new daily newsletter covering business in China that goes out every day at 9 p.m. Beijing time, 9 a.m. New York time. Go to subchina.com slash newsletters to subscribe. Now, on with the show. Jeremy Bame is a sinologist and historian, publisher and recovering academic who first went to China in the dying years of the Cultural Revolution, where he did manual labor, studied the works of Mao and Marx, and ate a lot of terrible food. He is the editor and publisher of China Heritage at ChinaHeritage.net. Welcome, Jeremy. Kia ora, Jeremy. Hi. And Jia Jianying writes, of course, for The New Yorker and is the author of several books, most recently Tide Players, The Movers and Shakers of a Rising China. Welcome, Jianying, and let's hope our technical issues are resolved this time. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for inviting me to this conversation. Hi. Jeremy recently, the other Jeremy, recently edited and published a five-part essay by Jianying titled China's Heart of Darkness, Prince Hanfei and Chairman Xi Jinping, which is what we're going to talk about today, as well as some other things. Prince Hanfei, or Hanfei is perhaps the most influential Chinese thinker that most Westerners have never heard of. Stuffy old Confucius is probably the world's most famous Chinese thinker. Sunzi, he of the art of war, is every Western business book's favorite Chinese strategist, while reputed author of the Taoist text Dao De Jing, Laozi is beloved of Western hippies and corporate speakers. I'd say I think that Mencius or Mengzi and Zhuangzi of the famous Butterfly Dream are on the Western world's B-list of Chinese philosophers and thinkers. But even less famous than the two of them, outside of China at least, uh, is Prince Hanfei, who I might argue is perhaps more important than any of the aforementioned gentlemen when it comes to understanding what is going on in China right now, in Xi Jinping's China. And we'll get to Xi Jinping a little later. But first, can I ask you, Jing, who is Prince Hanfei? Can you give us a, a brief biography? Uh, sure. Okay. Hanfei is one of the princes of the uh, state of Han, which was one of the seven states during the so-called Warring States period in ancient China, which, you know, this uh, generally term used in Chinese, among Chinese historians is pre-Qin, which basically covers a span of about 800 years, referring to the, the Chunqiu and Zhangguo, the period of uh, spring and autumn, and the period of warring states, um, which was a golden age for Chinese thought. Prince Hanfei lives towards the end of this period, which was about, uh, say, 
uh, 283 BC, as far as we know, because his biography was quite sketchy. Uh, but anyway, he's one of the prize students of a, a very uh, famous Confucius scholar named Xunzi, uh, which was kind of a Aristotle uh, kind of a figure in charge of this famous Jixia Academy, uh, where Hanfei studied as a as a young prince, but uh, he kind of went in a almost a opposite direction uh, from his mentor, which um, was you know he he became uh, someone who synthesized a lot of other schools of thoughts thriving during that period, including Taoism and other you know military school of military thoughts, and also these tacticians, and also based on the earlier legalist thinkers such as Lord Shang, you know, Shang Yang, who was a very influential and important uh, thinker and as an architect of reform for the state of Qin. And so he, uh, Hanfei basically synthesized a lot of these and debunked uh, Confucianism, you know, uh, wrote this master work called Hanfei Zi, uh, which became the foundational text uh, for a mature version of legalist thinking. And uh, Jing, sorry to interrupt, but could we define legalism since that really is uh, what we're talking about? Uh, what does it mean? Okay, legalism, I mean, um, it was often misunderstood with the rule of law, but it really is radically different from that. It sort of was rooted in the earlier uh, version of the uh, legalist think, so-called legalist thinking, though the term was, uh, you know, used much later, uh, which was, you know, the thought that in order to, it's a, a way of governing a state through, uh, you know, penal laws and, uh, you know, uh, uh, criminal laws as a more, you know, useful instrument uh, for for governance, which was, you know, before this, the Confucius thinking was, you know, uh, using a, a set of rights um, as, a, you know, the moral uh, education at the center of um, uh, governing the people, which is, you know, by, you know, sort of moral education or practicing Conf sort of Confucius rights uh, to instill uh, you know, uh, the uh, thought of, you know, proper behavior and, and uh, you know, respect for authorities. But the legalists thought that was really too wimpy and, and it's, you know, it's not going to actually uh, lead to real obedience to the state. So, you know, the legalist thinking introduced a much more authoritarian kind of top-down uh, way of rule, which, you know, uh, started from the state of Qi, um, but then it spread to other states through the hands of, you know, like um, Shangyang and Wu Qi, and then uh, um, through, then later, of course, through Hanfei. And it was really the foundational kind of philosophy um, for the state of Qin, you know, uh, the, the, the king who eventually unified China towards the end of, um, you know, uh, third century and became the first emperor of China. What made you want to write about uh, Han Feizhe uh, this year? Actually, it started two years ago uh, when I uh, first published a New Yorker piece about this strange practice of Beiliu, uh, which, you know, the, the, that, that was a piece that came out in, the I think, December 2018. And it was about how the police, you know, used um, this uh, strange practice of taking all the dissidents out of, uh, say, uh, Beijing, the capital, during the so-called sensitive periods when there is a, a party, uh, you know, Congress or uh, international forum uh, happening. So they would take these dissidents, escorted by a team of police, uh, in plainclothes police out of the capital so that they would have no way to speak to the media uh, in town. Uh, that's a, a kind of a very Chinese style way of maintaining, you know, social uh, stability. And so that led me to think about a kind of follow-up study 
about what is really the root of this peculiar Chinese style, you know, police state, and to track the sort of intellectual and cultural roots to this way of using law uh, in the name of、um, preserving and maintaining social st- stability, but really a more you know sort of ruthless way of cracking down on all forms of dissent. And、uh, reining in all the you know rebels and and you know、uh, and、um, you know produce a kind of、um, uh, a police state in the name of rule of law and how that was manipulated and distorted all the way through different you know dynasties and all this to the present day of Xi Jinping because Xi Jinping happens to be probably the first Chinese Communist Party leader who emphasized so much. Uh, the use of law, and、uh, though you know, with him it was a complete、uh, in his speeches and addresses, it was a, a real uh, double speak.、Um, he speaks a rule of law,、uh, but in fact underneath it, when I、uh, began to reread Han Feizi, which I did, you know, the,、um, about two years ago, you know, I, I realized the connection between this、uh, archaic text that was written. Over two thousand years ago, really had been a kind of a hidden tradition, intellectual tradition that has never been, you know, really、uh, looked at closely or you know taken very seriously by political scientists or you know not to to say outside China, but even in China,、uh, a lot of intellectuals often focused on either. Uh, looking at the Confucius tradition, or looking at you know the Marxist-Leninist heritage to you know interpret the CCP rule. Um, let's get back to the, the question of you know what law means in China to to Han Fei and to Xi Jinping and others a little later. But Jeremy, can I ask you、uh, why did you want to edit and publish Jing's essay? And you know, to the two of you, how did this come together on China heritage? Oh, well, I, I, first I should say that Jianying and I <clears throat> have known of each other and been friendly from afar, so to speak, as reading friends for over thirty years. But it wasn't until two thousand and seventeen that we actually met. We both used to publish in the magazine in Hong Kong called Jutian Endai, and Jianying was very active there. As she also began publishing a, a great series of works in English about contemporary China and intellectual life. So I've long admired her work, and it just happened last year in November 2019. Kevin Rudd of the Asia Society invited me to New York to give a talk, and the thing I addressed was really the things that were happening around the 1st of October, 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, and Xi Jinping had just released an essay on the 2nd of October about Chinese history, politics, and the future, and in that. Piece he mentioned the Qin Emperor, who and discussed a number of issues to do with this long tradition of autocracy in China.、Uh, the Qin Emperor was a great favorite of Chairman Mao's, and in my talk I mentioned the Qin. I mentioned Mao's obsession with the Qin Emperor, who was、uh, in fact. Enacted, operationalized Han Fei's thinking in many ways,、um, and I said that Mao famously regarded himself as being. He said it, an expression he used: "I am a mixture of Marx plus Qin Shi Huang."、Um, and over lunch after that talk, Jianying said,、oh, "It was wonderful to hear this talk. I enjoyed it very much. He was very polite." And as we were all chatting, he said, "In fact, I wrote a piece about Han Fei and the Legalists." And the Qin Emperor and present significance of it、uh, for the for the New Yorker, and that didn't they thought it was a bit too difficult、uh, for them to cope with. And I said, "Oh, that sounds great. Can you show it to me? I'd love to read it." And then over the next few weeks in November, December last year, Jianying shared her draft with me, and we began discussing it. And I, being pushy, I just said, "Could you please expand it and add this and add that and so on and so forth?" And so over the next couple of months, Jianying expanded the essay. Um, and it ended up being this very—it's about twenty-five thousand words now, and、um, with the aim, I, I wanted Jenning to do it with the aim of publishing it in China Heritage because I thought it's incredibly interesting and informative and important, but、um, not that easy for big journals, Western English language mainstream journals, to publish. And Jenning very kindly expanded and expanded and answered all. <laughs> 
my pesky questions and queries and uh, ended up producing this wonderful essay. So that's how it really came about. Jenny, I hope that's correct. That seems to be my memory of it. Oh, definitely. I was actually uh, <laughs> delighted that uh, by Jeremy's immediate reaction that he would uh, he 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 really likes this and thought it was important piece and he would be willing to work with me. And since then, we have had you know uh, weeks and of constant you know back and forth, both you know discussion over coffee at you know New York cafes and also you know after he returned to to New Zealand we ha- also had many rounds of um discussions through emails and telephones and and then so as Jeremy said it's, it's kept on this expanding uh, probably three times or more uh the original draft plus a lot of notes which uh, you know um is in fact, the first time I, I, I did actually footnotes, um, uh, you know, as in before in, in sort of journalist pieces, you cannot really have footnotes. So Je- it was Jeremy can be liberating. a very demanding editor. I, I know the suffering. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> very pushy, very demanding editor. And he knows absolutely everything so you know you can't get lazy for it's very for, for anything <laughs> and instead of being no shorter and simpler he's like longer <laughs> more complex you need to you know go a bit further into this and that but i i must say it was uh such a, a liberating you know experience it was uh uh, you know, delightful. I'd like to just say, I mean, Jenny can can address the issue of how of her youthful engagement with Han Fazer, and she describes it very beautifully in the essay as she starts uh, in the prologue to the the piece. But I should just sort of say that my own interest in Han Fei and the Legalists began even before I went to China as a twenty year old. In my nineteenth year, the anti Confucius, um, anti Lin Biao pro-legalist political movement was going on in China. And it's one of the first things I read about as an, un- an undergraduate when we, I could read basic Marxist-style Chinese. And when I went to China, that was what the, that's the movement that was on. And so I read my first Chinese comic book was about Shang Jun, Shang Yang, and <laughs> Shang Yang's legalism, and Han Fazer, and so on and so forth. So from the very start of my life in the mainland, um, legalism and its history and importance because of Mao um, was part of the repertoire. And later people just dismissed the whole legalist movement, anti-Confucian, pro-legalist movement and its analysis of Chinese history. I personally never did because I've, by studying at that time in my very early years and then paying attention to how after the Cultural Revolution they brought back Pungjin and these other incredible uh, tough, what you'd call legalist thugs to run China's modern legal system, um, I realized that this long tradition was of great importance. Never wrote anything about it, but the minute that Jenning mentioned her work, I said, well, this is so important, how wonderful to have somebody finally addressing this. So I'm going to try and kind of dumb things down to my level uh, uh, and then ask the of you to expand on it for more uh, uh, complexity. Um, how are we to understand legalism? And, uh, you know, am I correct to use the Chinese word fa jia? Uh, legalism and its relationship to what the Communist Party now calls rule of law or sometimes is translated as rule by law, for which there are two characters uh, both pronounced fa that mean slightly different things. Could the two of you sort of lay out the landscape of of these words and how what the differences are between them first i'd just like to say just a a little word about this it is a very complex world but jenning touched on that on this and that is with the rise of the legalist school of thought and this is a school of thought as as, and 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 jenning goes into great detail about its origins influence and then impact on xi jinping but it has at its core not only this belief in using strict regulations and laws that cover every aspect of social life, as well as commerce, as well as military life, as well as um, rule, rulership. Um, It also has inside it, in its very core, an extremely, a spiritual dimension. And that is a belief, not only in the perfectibility of humankind, or man, to use the older word, but also that 
by correct regulation of a society, you're engaging in a kind of a spiritual, a numinous activity that is about coordinating human life in correspondence with the grand principles of eternity. And this, so the legalism, it's harsh and cruel and demanding, but it also is aimed at a utopian remaking of humanity. And this is one of the reasons it gels so perfectly with a Marxist-Leninist, and here I'd say Leninist, as well as the Chinese version of Marxism-Leninism as Maoism-Xi Jinpingism, is this law, regulation, control, manipulation aligned with a certain element of what we would regard as being the spiritual, that is aiming at controlling, uplifting and transforming human nature and the spirit itself. And that's what makes it particularly difficult to grasp, because it's not just imposing tough laws and being mean <laughs> and being cruel. It's also with the aim of doing that so as to bring about social perfection. So it's not so much holding the ruler to account by impartial laws. It's setting a set of rules for the common people to obey in order for society to run well and bashing them over the head with those rules if they step out of line. Well, from the very earliest moment when legalism is employed, and Jenny can address this better than me, there's this element also that, that the ruler, the emperor, is themselves a morally superior being. This is why, because of their duh, which means both moral power and political power, it means power, control, and also morality. Because of their duh, they rule. And therefore, what they impose is for the betterment of everybody. It's the ultimate form of, of, um, of patriarchal um, control and manipulation. So, Jane, can I ask you to tease out the difference between the two Fajr and, and, and how we should understand them in Xi Jinping's China in the context of legalism? After um, this Hanfei piece came out in China Heritage, I received um, a lot of, you know, different responses from readers. And, and one um, particular kind of stuck in my mind is that someone who uh, said it was was a uh, American sociologist uh, who said, you know, um, you, you compared actually in the essay was just briefly compared uh, Machiavelli with uh, Han Fei, and he said, but you know, uh, Han Fei seemed to be much more cynical, whereas Machiavelli had a, a more of an idealistic aspect, which I think, of course, he refers to probably the. The, um, the Florentine republicanism that in Machiavelli, even though, you know, he's pretty cynical himself, you know, in the actual, you know, using of, um, you know, uh, the, the, the way of, uh, you know, maintaining power. But Han Fei's utopianism aspect is, is different. Of course, there's none of the republicanism in it. But I think his uh, view of law has also a certain idealistic dimension in that he feels even though uh, the uh, personal virtues uh, of the emperor cannot be, you know, uh, just came by training because a lot of there is a lot of disputes even, you know, before Han Fei's time, uh, famously cruel and everything. But law is something that's so kind of neutral and could be applied uniformly by uh, uh, any emperor, even if it's, you know, you can't maybe mitigate the worst despots, but, you know, you can use law to rule a country, even with a, media, a lot of emperors or kings in, in uh, Han Fei's eyes are, are someone who's neither extraordinarily virtuous nor very talented. But if you, you have, you know, followed this kind of uniform standard of law uh, through the all levels of government, then even with, you know, the average emperor or king, ruler, can achieve a, a sort of a, a fairly good level of government where you have both social order and also kind of uh, a strong state. Uh, so in, in that aspect, I think Han Fei himself is both cynical and idealistic, if you can put that. Also, he has a view of law that uh, absorbed a, a level of Taoist element, which, which treats, you know, the ruling of the state with, through law with, as, a, as, as a form of art. 
So in the his, you know, quite large and rich toolkit uh, of you know legal rule, Hanfei actually offered uh, not only just these um, uh, penal laws that should be publicized so that everyone knows, uh, and it's not just personalistic, but also a set of uh, rules that the emperor. Uh, could by sitting uh, in the palace could actually use law and di- other tactics uh, such as I mean here this is where you get a sort of prototype of um, police state uh, which uh, through the hands of emperor he can manipulate different levels of uh, officials and underlings so they have to follow a set of uh, published laws you know not only following their own profit. And so, you know, in his eyes, I think it's a, a, a sophisticated set of methods in the name of rule of law, um, not just to strengthen uh, the emperor, but also at the same time achieve a kind of uh, fairly competent and good, you know, state of, uh, uh, state of government. So, so in other words, a, a way for a, a man of mediocre intelligence uh, like Xi Jinping to rule wisely, <laughs> if that <laughs> argument is followed through. Yeah, well, you, you can say Xi Jinping, it, you know, depending on how, which aspect of Han Feizi you're, you're, you're reading, uh, he's, uh, he's a good student and also a bad student uh, because he, he really manipulates law uh, so much uh, for his own self-interest. You know, we all know the most, of course, the notorious part is he stripped the term limits completely. But also he often, you know, would force uh, he and his men um, passing new, these new laws, um, you know, uh, you know, on the surface, they really seem to be passed by the, the People's uh, Congress. But in fact, you know, he treats that as a complete rubber stand. And he uses the party's disciplinary code uh, internally to, you know, carry out his, uh, you know, awards and punishment. That's how, you know, he uses, uh, you know, the, the more, I would say, darker aspect of Han Feizi the technical, the shu, uh, the shu part, the technical part, um, to uh, you know uh, enforce this particular form of rule by law, uh, or in in fact, you know that that's a that melts very um, you know nicely with the Leninist disciplinary um, codes. So you know it's 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 not just Han Feizi or just Leninist. I think it's a it's a like a uh, uh, amalgamation of traditional Chinese legalism with the modern kind of Leninist party um, heritage. Um, can I just ask one more question about sort of the meaning of fa uh, of, of law in in China? Um, when when Han Feizi was writing, when he used law, do you think he was aware of the sort of hypocrisy? that we might read into it now uh, of an approach of using laws to enforce the authority uh, and the power of the ruler rather than to hold the ruler to account. Um, you know, is the ambiguity between the two Fajr characters, the rule of law, rule by law in contemporary China, was that a reality in Han Feizi's time as well? And we are just seeing a slightly different version of it. Or has the meaning of the word law in China changed uh, because of the introduction of foreign ideas or for some other reason over time? As you said, the introduction of, of, of what do you call, well, you'd have to call them global norms of law because um, the way the China, the China was introduced was really to a great extent through Japan. So one can't just say it's just Western values. The ideas had been circulated through Japan to China and originated in the West, but this whole body of law and legal thought that in the in the Western tradition, i.e., the European tradition, traces its origins back, in particular, to Roman times. This had a huge impact on twentieth century China and continues to be 
um, inform and in, engage Chinese legal thinkers to this day. The Communist Party, um, as you know, in the last 10, 15 years, has moved in various directions. In one direction, it seemed to be moving more towards what we regard as being a more modern, globalized version of law and legality. And that's why in relation to international law and in relation to even those undertakings that the Chinese authorities had made with over Hong Kong with Britain and the way that China was regulating itself in terms of a whole range of issues from intellectual property and so on and so forth. This is one of the cruxes of the great strife between America and China at the moment. But under Xi Jinping, we've seen a move back to, uh, well, back on one level and also an advance back to this sort of modern recalibrated version of traditional legal thinking which is which is in service of the ruler ruling class and the ruling organization whether it be dynastic or the communist party and in that system there's a pretense that people are all equal before the law but that's not true and the law is not something that is above or beyond the party organization or in fact the party leader and that is something that is rather difficult to grasp that the law is something that is manipulated by the party for its own ends, which it believes are for the betterment of the society. This is where it parallels what happened in the Soviet Union. Nowadays, many of the legal actions against dissidents and against activists in China really reflect the types of legal system that developed in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, the Voishinsky model of rulership that was introduced by the Communist Party in 1937-89 and has been part of the tradition. So as Jianying was saying, this, this strange traditional version of law and this modern Western version of law along with the Soviet version of law are all intermingled and are a constant um, entanglement. And Xi Jinping and his colleagues, as you know, Jeremy, spend a huge amount of time in legalistic wranglings over how to not only impose law and police it, but how to write it all up and revise it and correct it. They're obsessed with the, with the wording and the statutes and so on and so forth, even though the ultimate aim is to use the law, as Jenning was saying, for the sake of the party or the party's leader's benefit, believing that the party leader and the party are themselves the incarnation of history and progress and modernity. And, and just to add one uh, concrete example of that, I think it's, uh, this was uh, one of the uh, kind of uh, uh, prominent uh, uh, lawyers in a, in, a, in a commercial law firm in Beijing who said to me about, oh, you know, six or seven years ago, he said, you know, if you were really want to just distill the state of uh, uh, legal practice or law in China, uh, you could just um, uh, go with this uh, saying of, you know, basically is um, uh, in Chinese is, uh, you know, 小案看法治, uh, that means, you know, uh, in small cases, you have a level of rule, rule of law and which are usually uh, very local, often commercial or civil dispute uh, that there may be the the actual legal codes are can be followed or can be at least appealed to uh in the court but the the medium sized uh um you know cases which involves you know um politics at local level and you know uh, officials and uh bigger corporations or company you know um th that depends on context networking meaning who's your backers who do you have a political you know a patron that can you know intervene and then the big cases which is the national cases um it says it's completely politics uh means you know uh the party is, uh you know decides and there's uh, you know really nothing um following the law is just a piece of paper this of course we can we can see in all these sort of show trials really of say you know Bo Xilai or or um, Zhou Yunkang or the more recent you know case of Ren Zhiqiang who got 18 years on the so-called you know uh corruption <laughs> business corruption but everyone knows it's 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 politics it's because he wrote an essay that uh offended uh, the dear leader, uh, Xi Jinping. 
Uh, and I, I mean, I, I guess you can smell the same strong stench of politics in the midnight suspension of Ant Group's IPO. Uh, uh, reporting uh, soon after that indicated that Xi Jinping was personally offended by Jack Ma's speech, and thus the IPO, what was to have been the world's biggest IPO, was suspended. Um, Indeed, it was a wonderful illustration of, so you want to deal with China, you want to think China's part of the global community you want to think it's just like oh they're just like us you want to do what i call the kumbaya china well this is reality wake up and smell as they say wake up and smell the coffee right. um, let's talk about a few other things but before we leave han Feizer, maybe i could just read a, a couple of lines uh of jen yang's reading han Feizer this time around i no longer found myself bored instead it was a disturbing and chilling experience i shuddered at the cynical dismissal of morality in this ancient text the paranoid mindset of its author his misanthropic worldview but I was also impressed by the profound learning, the complete absence of sentimentality in Han Fei and his unsparing honesty, his ruthless yet often brilliant insights into power, political strategy, and the fine art of psychological manipulation are a thing of wonder. That's uh, quite a, a description of Han Fei. H how do you rate Xi Jinping on the Han Feiometer in terms of uh, misanthropism, paranoid mindset, uh, cynical uh, dismissal of morality, Jianying? If I may ask a cheeky question. Oh, I I think you know if you give an academic rating, he's maybe you know I I. I'm very doubtful that he's actually read uh, most of Han Feizi. This is a, a you know a, a, a archaic text of over one thousand pages with with text and and, and annotation. But um, you know, so there, I think he, he I would say C minors. But you know, if you you put it into practice. Um, That's what I'm asking. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think he would he would have to be uh, you know probably A minors if I would say. Of course, we you know everything is still unfolding. We don't know how far, and he he certainly you know we, we don't have time to go into specific specifics here. But he failed even by Hanfei's standard in several aspects. If you go by the 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 canon, you know of of legalism. But in terms of how much he's already managed to achieve of, you know, putting every, you know, the entire Chinese officialdom and bureaucracy and, and intellectuals in terror of him, they all are kowtowing to the new, you know, uh, legalist emperor. <laughs> uh, so there he, he gets, in, in my uh, ranking, very good scores. A, a minus. So does Chairman Mao, did he get an A plus? Oh, Chairman Mao is above law. It's <laughs> above it all. He didn't have to bother with, you know, <laughs> with the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's beyond the chart. Chairman Mao is beyond the chart. <laughs> if, I, if I could observe on Mao, after all, they still can't get rid of him. He's a man who floats above. Now he floats above history and law and everything. He is now an eternal you know, cultural figure like Napoleon in France. And He's not in, going in, yeah, he, so Mao, that's, could, that's I think the Mao would be the mystic dragon king in Tanfei's uh, description, you know. Uh, so that this is, you know, the, I mean, I, I think uh, compared to Mao, Xi will, will forever have to be a wannabe. Except in one area, and this is where, you know, that's in practical political terms, this is very concerning. That's true. Well, two areas. One is facing off America. And the second is resolving national unity, the Daitong, the great unification of the state, and therefore Taiwan. And this is one area that I would imagine I've thought for many, many years, he believes, Xi Jinping believes he can outrank Mao and do something that none of the others, none of the other revolutionaries of 20th century China, in fact, because Xi Jinping is in a, in a lineage of revolutionary leaders, not just Mao, but all of them. Um, he will do something unique. And so that's um, of significance for people who follow China today. And people who live anywhere near the South and East China Seas.
Well, the rest of the world, or or the Asia Pacific, if I may comment from my own little perch in the world in New Zealand, it matters a great deal. Oh, the Indo Pacific, I believe, is the new. new Well, Indo Pacific, America, you know. (laughs) And I I would say also, Zhang is a pretty lucky guy. You know, he has timing, you know, not thanks to him, but um, he came to power on the, uh, you know, top of 40 decades of sort of done uh, ushered in, you know, economic reform. So the state was fat with money. And also he's, uh, you know, uh, exploiting the current, of course, ongoing uh, crisis um, in the in Western uh, democracy, you know, and, and so in, in that aspect, he's he's uh, he's he's a lucky fellow. <laughs> he was born with a red spoon fight. in his mouth. Ma- Mao did have to fight all those bloody, you know, battles on the way to power, both in terms of his theoretical, you know, um, enemies like 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 Ming and also you know uh, the nationalists and 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 all that. But um, uh, Xi Jinping just <laughs> had to lie low, climb the ladder, the official ladder, and. And now here he is, you know. So I would like to talk about two two more things today. The one is uh, in your recent essay, uh, not essay, conversation uh, uh, that was published, um, uh, Freedom is Not Free in Chinese, with I think a partial translation so far on Jeremy's site, China Heritage. But before that, maybe I can just ask, there's been... Uh, a recent uh, outpouring of support for Donald Trump from various characters uh, uh, from China's dissident or anti-establishment community, ranging from Ai Weiwei, who's been retweeting uh, conspiracy theories about the American election, pro-Trumpist conspiracy theories, uh, as has, I think, Liao Yiwu, uh, and there have been uh, various peop- articles about people like Wang Dun, the uh, 1989 dissident who's been living in America, who has become a Trump supporter. What What's going on with these people? Uh, I can kind of understand the new immigrants arriving from China. They don't like affirmative action. They've got their money and they want to keep it and they like low taxes and all that macho business bullshit. But what what is with people who oppose oppression in China uh, and discrimination uh, supporting Donald Trump? Because it's it's not just a few of them. It it's it's a an observable phenomenon. Jeremy, maybe you could take a stab at it first. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, Jenny and I have discussed this a great deal. Jenny gets she has very um impassioned response. Being an American, of course, also helps. I'm not being not an American myself and free of that type of emotional aspect of things. I, I have a slightly different view. And also I have a different view that's somewhat in, influenced by my involvement with the late 80s democracy activists and the 89 movement. And then having spent years um, studying the dissident community in America and independent intellectuals in China and made a movie, Gate of Heavenly Peace, about the 89 movement and then being dragged through six years of litigation in America by China's so-called goddess of democracy, Chai Ling. Uh, she sued our company, the Longbow Group, Karma Hinton and Richard Gordon, and uh, in, involving me as well, for our movie. And that reflected already a sort of, she was a, became a fundamentalist, Christian reactionary, uh, pro-Republican, uh, conspiracy theory, theory nutter, nutter. This is 10, 15 years ago. So I've had a long history of being, of observing this type of both self-hate, this this contempt for one's own impotence in a political process that's also involved with what I believe is um, a complete contempt for democratic norms and legal norms. The belief that trained in China, in a China where legalist thought, Allah Hanfei, has been around in particular during the communist era from the 1940s, in which law and elections and ideas are all manipulated for the sake of power and oneself or one's group. And I'm afraid that I very, very crudely put, and I, I don't read tons of the stuff about the Trump, the Trump, the Chinese Trumpfen, they're called, the, the, the Trump fans uh, or the Trumpites. I don't read too much because it's just so sullying and so vile and beneath contempt. But it is part of a much longer cultural, political and um, social 
metric that goes back throughout the 20th century in particular. And we've seen it um, in many forms. And this is the latest, the latest articulation of it. And it's really, for those who are not familiar with this landscape, it's pretty breathtaking. Sorry, Jenny, you have much, much more informed views. <laughs> no, not much more, but because I'm partially uh, uh, feeling, you know, so outraged by by um, this uh, the, this phenomenon of so many, you know, raving uh, Trump fans who have been um, my so-called Chinese liberal comrades of the last uh, at least thirty years since Tiananmen, and so many of them. Have become, you know, the, uh, these, uh, super spreaders, at least on the Chinese, you know, uh, internet and, uh, media, um, you know, of conspiracy theories and, and also in the process revealing their own, uh, you know, uh, bigotry in so many ways, uh, you know, racism, misogynism and Islamophobia and you name it, you know, and, and then these are, Supposed to be, you know, a community of um, uh, believers of universal values, a Pu Shi Pai in Chinese, you know. So, you know, all of a sudden, uh, now all the, you know, uh, all of them seem to only really care about their own, you know, self-interest, their own, uh, you know, failed cause of, you know, fighting for democracy in China or for their own, you know, rights, uh, rights of free speech in China. All of a sudden, you realize they really don't, don't give a damn about the rights of anyone else outside that context. And, and in fact, they have such contempt, open, ugly, grotesque contempt for, you know, uh, the civil rights, um, you know, movement, the Black uh, Lives Matter movements in, in the U.S., uh, about the, you know, the, the rights of refugees, um, and, you know, the, the rights of, uh, you know, new immigrants, um, and uh, the feminist movements, and, and they, they, they love this, uh, this, uh, you know, sort of, uh, demonization of the so-called white, uh, you know, white leftist who was supposed to be responsible for the downfall of, you know, the great, you know, white Christian, uh, West, uh, which used to be so beautiful and now completely, you know, soiled and, and, uh, you know, uh, dumbed down by all these, uh, stupid new immigrants and, and, you know, uh, cultural Marxist, uh, uh, you know, who smoked dope and, and, you know, all came from the 1960s, right? And I mean, this is, these are the people I, some of them at least, I admired, uh, for many years. Some of them were, you know, uh, dissidents on, you know, uh, uh, Tiananmen, and some of them were, you know, imprisoned, uh, fighting for civil rights, you know, like, uh, I remember this shocking moment. Uh, this was actually going bef- uh, uh, a few years back in the, t- during the time of, uh, 2016, you know, uh, uh the first Trump, election, uh, first election when Trump won. And one of the similar, uh, civil rights lawyers in China uh, basically uh, used the word openly, the N word to describe, to call uh, Obama. Every time it's actually, you know, Heigui, you know, it's a black devil. It's, it's the equivalent of, of the N words. Uh, and then uh, you, every time you talked about Hillary, it has to be, it's, it's the, of course, it's the, it's the, the B word in English, but in, in Chinese, it actually was Lao Jinyu, you know, old whore. And, uh, and so a lot of these uh, public, so-called public intellectuals already kind of smelled of their, their, their kind of, um, male chauvinistic, misogynist views during the Chinese mini version of Me Too movement in China. I, it was just very limited, of course, as any, you know, so, so-called, you know, radical movement. Uh, it has problems, and I have problems with a lot of the, you know, uh, PC politics in, in, in uh, Western academias here. But we're not, that's not the, the degree uh, of discontent we're talking about. I'm talking about the real heavy dose, uh, ugly, naked, you know, sort of uh, uh, bigotry among the so-called liberals in China. And then all of a sudden, because they're so desperate in their failure of, you know, um, of the liberal agenda in China, 
which I have full sympathy, of course, under a leader of of Xi Jinping. What else can you expect, right? But to you know project their you know uh failed you know cause uh, the the solution onto someone like Donald Trump is just beyond. I mean, this is so surreal to me. Uh, I have to say, I, I view this whole thing with such horror, especially since the the you know uh, the George Floyd uh, protest. If you just go into any of these um, big WeChat groups, uh, full of Chinese liberals and public intellectuals, and 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 just to read the messages, it's just sickening. I mean, this is really not encouraging uh, for anyone who cares about. Um, you know the spreading of China. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, uh, liberal enlightenment in China. If the, these are the the, the educators uh, for the Chinese uh, enlightenment, you know, uh, we we have no hope. Right. Um, well, uh, Jiang, I, I just um, before I slit my wrists, um, maybe I can ask you, <laughs> Jeremy, about something that may encourage me even more to slit my wrists, which is. Uh, you published on uh, China Heritage, uh, I think, I don't know if it was um, Jeremy's title, Adieu China, uh, Jianying Jia's Long Farewell, which is uh, uh, an introduction to an exchange published in Chinese originally, Freedom is Not Free, A New Decameron, uh, an exchange with, is it Kato uh, Yoshikazu, a Beijing-based writer from Japan. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I know it's also not necessarily the happiest of subjects, but hey, today is all darkness all the time. Yeah, well, it, it, this book actually was two years in the making. Um, it, you know, I, I never imagined it would end up to be a tome of six hundred over 600 pages. Uh, and it just came out by... Um, uh, Oxford University Press in Hong Kong, but originally it was um, uh, started um, uh, from a conversation between me and Kato, uh, Kato uh, Yoshikazu, uh, in a Beijing salon. Um, you know, in 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 Beijing, it, this was uh, the, I think was the summer of two o one eight, and um, there's a full um, uh, houseful of young. Uh, students and young sort of uh, liberal people in Beijing, all very anxious and confused, even though that was, you know, about a year and a half or two years after Donald Trump's election. And the U- U.S.-China relations were taking a, 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 a radical turn for the worse. And, and some of the students, of course, were also worried about whether they would continue to have access to, to, to come to the West to study. And the liberal cause in China, you know, the American image was, you know, turning darker and, 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 you know, exploited by the Chinese government, you know, to rally the, the country around a kind of anti-American kind of nationalist flag. So I thought it, it, during that conversation was the first time I actually talked about my own, you know, uh, heart-rending feelings uh, as, um, you know, a, a Chinese who, you know, uh, grew up in Beijing and, and romanticized America from my youth, from, you know, studied in the West, eventually become a U.S. citizen, had been traveling back and forth and feeling completely caught in between. Um, so, and we had, you know, this passionate uh, conversation with all these uh, youngsters, you know, asking questions and everything. And that was the first time I realized perhaps there is a, this is the moment to talk about, you know, um, nearly 40 years of um, a personal journey that I made traveled between America and China. And what does it mean uh, at this moment um, to, you know, uh, to be a Chinese American and, and to write bilingually and, and all that? And, and so I, I have to say, at, in, in the first, um, at the beginning, it was supposed to be, in my mind at least, a kind of a love song for America, you know, uh, for my generation who was, you know, sort of um, called Deng Ta Pai, you know, the school of the beacon, you know, uh, uh, you know, we viewed America as our, as our icon, you know, um, to become a smaller and smaller minority 
uh, in, in China was just, you know, such a heartbreaking moment. So at, at that moment, I wanted to basically tell the Chinese readers in Chinese, um, what does it mean, you know, to really come to America and then, you know, the journey from there on. But of course, as the conversation continued and, and Cattle put in his bilingual, bicultural uh, experience between China and Japan, and also with the, he, he also had spent a couple of years in the U.S. So in the course of that conversation, of course, we ended up talking uh, a, a more about, you know, um, also the mixed, you know, sort of uh, uh, message. I mean, it ended up to be a, a really a re-evaluation uh, about what America means. Uh, and what does it mean to be, you know, a liberal Chinese, uh, you know, so-called, you know, cosmopolitan uh, Chinese at this moment of time? So, I mean, we, we were actually ended up, I mean, also uh, being critical of, you know, the uh, certain, you know, deep rooted problems America had. It's not just the ideal, but it, in reality, we have these um, you know, racist prob racist problems of racism, and and you know, uh, where I talked about the first um, uh, three years I spent in the University of South in South Carolina. So I had a lot of actually, uh, really deep South friends, American friends who are from the deep South, um, some of whom are still my close friend today, and we how we discuss about the problem of race. And how you know um, I traveled um, the the route from you know a very kind of um, simplistic you know kind of Chinese uh, uh, use um, uh, viewing America in a simplistic way to you know today that we realize you know really um, you know you need to be uh, have this sort of independent critical um, uh, mind about any country and, and you can't be a, a ideologue uh, in any simple fashion. I mean, so anyway, I'm <laughs> start to get rambling here. Could I just uh, make a, put in a plug for China here? So Jenning very kindly allowed me to translate the introduction to this new book, Freedom is Not Free, that's just out this, this last week or this week. Um, and she's also kindly allowed me to continue next year um, I'm going to publish probably five, six, seven more selections from the book about uh, America, America and China, and about Jennings' perceptions and Mr. Kato's perceptions of things. And it's going to form part of the um, next year's China Heritage Annual. Each year I have a theme. This year's theme was Viral Alarm. Next year is going to be called Spectres and Souls, which is on America, China, and the various battles for nations' souls, individual souls, spectres of the past, spectres of race, and so on and so forth. So Jennings' um, work has helped inspire this new series. Great. Very appropriately titled, I must say, Jeremy, because right. uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, a, a soul-probing kind of um, moment, and, and it's full of ghost <laughs> from the past and and you know how do how do we um you know really go on from 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 here because there's so much uh confusion and and you know um misgivings about the present and future as as jeremy says okay boomer we we you guys both in our 60s now and so it's a perfect time to sort of look back and be lost in reverie while the young have to deal with the mess we've left them <laughs> for, for, fortunately i'm rapidly aging into your um demographic so hopefully the, the zoomers will sort it out uh generation x is obviously completely hopeless um be, before we go jeremy can i ask since today uh rather amusingly the communist party leaked uh in uh quote marks leaked a a document spelling out the 14 sins of Australia, the things they've done wrong and why they deserve, you know, to have their goods boycotted and tariffed and generally have Beijing being mean to them. Did you <laughs> did you read anything about it? And do you have any comment on <laughs> China's new um, uh, 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 apparent adoption of Australia as its whipping boy, kind of not too 
not too big and not too small. It's kind of the Goldilocks of countries you want to make an example of, I suppose. <laughs> Indeed, years ago, in Wen Fuying, now, now the state council spokesperson, when she was ambassador in Australia in 2006, 7, 8, around then, China's strategy under Hu Jintao was to try and see whether Australia would be the bellwether place, place in the Western alliance, whether it could be flipped to use that terminology related to American elections. And they tried very hard and it didn't work. And then they got a Chinese speaking premier, Kevin Rudd, who didn't turn out to be the type of um, easy the fall guy that they wanted. And yes, it's been a constant you know, tussle in recent years and for decades. And there's a strong lobby in Australia to basically turn the country into a, a satrapy of China. It's, um, oh, I look forward to the 14 great crimes. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That was a diversion from Seneca, one episode in an occasional series of chats about China and a bunch of other stuff. I've been your host, Jeremy Goldcorn. If you enjoyed this, please check out subchina.com for more or subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>